The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In the early 1980s, many of the staff at Lone Mountain Ranch in Big Sky, Montana, were like a close-knit family, both working and living together on the property. And not only did Lone Mountain function as a working cattle ranch, it also offered luxury guest accommodations for tourists looking to get a taste of the Old West. On a hot July day in 1984, one of the staff members had decided to go out for a run along a well-used trail through the scenic beauty of the surrounding area, but never returned. When it was realized, other workers at the ranch dropped everything to go out looking for her. No one could have predicted the horrifying and deadly situation they'd come across when they finally found her. Join me now as we take a look at the shocking abduction of world-class biathlete Carrie Swinson, taken by a father and son who lived in the expanse of mountains. You'll also hear about the courageous acts of someone who tried rescuing Carrie and risked his own life to save her. Nestled midway between Yellowstone National Park and Bozeman, Montana, sits the majestic outdoor mecca known as Big Sky, a town today synonymous with adventure and all the tourism and development that gravitates towards areas of uncommon beauty like these. The landscape is absolutely breathtaking, and for the majority of people who flock there each year, getting out into the surrounding mountains is a form of recreation, a way to relax and get in tune with nature. And for some, perhaps, it's an opportunity to test their mettle against the mountains, just to see what they're made of. In the past, however, living in this region of the Rocky Mountain West was about survival, becoming a proving ground for American pioneers, trappers, fur traders, and explorers. Back in the early 1800s, when Montana first opened for fur trading, a new type of man emerged in the canon of American folklore, the Mountain Man, men who'd set off on their own to tame the rugged wilderness, living off the land, and roam the West. Among some of the folklore heroes were men like Jim Bridger, John Coulter, and Hugh Glass. And to this day, innumerable mountains, parks, valleys, counties, rivers, and towns bear the names of these mountain men. Their exploits and adventures forming the bedrock of the romanticized ideals of the American West, like self-reliance, ruggedness, courage and independence. Even to this day, you'll find people choosing to live completely off the grid in the Rocky Mountains. Men who consider themselves individualists and survivalists. But not everyone who lives up in the mountains can be considered a true mountain man. At least not the type anyone should admire or celebrate with ideals more sinister than romantic. 
On July 15, 1984, a father and son made camp in the woods just north of Big Sky. It had been almost an entire year since either man had lived in any sort of civilized manner, something that was pretty obvious just by looking at them. Head to toe, both men were filthy, their clothes absolutely ragged. The father, Don Nichols, looked a lot older than 53, sporting a scraggly gray beard, his face so weathered it resembled a well-used baseball mitt. His 19-year-old son, Danny, wasn't too far behind, working pretty hard, it seemed, at replicating his father's mangy beard. For the better part of a decade, Don had lived in the mountains and was proud his boy finally decided to join him in his lifestyle. After spending a year living in the mountains together, very few words needed to be exchanged between the pair as they set up camp. As they placed their hunting rifles down, Don pulled supplies from his rucksack and began mixing ingredients for dinner. Danny gathered pine boughs to create a comfortable sleeping platform they'd share. One of the many essential skills Don had learned living up in the mountains was how to make a smokeless campfire for cooking by using only dead branches still clinging to the bottoms of trees. These types of branches not only created a perfectly hot cooking fire, most importantly, it didn't create any smoke, something that might alert or draw attention to their presence. The reason that was so important was because Don and Danny frequently trespassed, poached, raided cabins, camps, and ranger stations for supplies. Although they lived in the mountains, their warped definition of self-reliance excused them from any wrongdoing when they stole from others, taking whatever they felt they needed or wanted. In that regard, that particular day was no different. What was different was what they'd chosen to steal, a woman. A few hours earlier, Don and Danny had abducted 22-year-old Carrie Swenson when she was out for a run, and there she was now, at the edge of their campsite, chained to a pine tree. And as you can imagine, she was absolutely terrified. Earlier that day, Carrie decided on going on a six-mile run on a well-used trail just north of town. Little did she realize she wasn't alone. From a distance, Don and Danny had seen her running around Ullery's Lake as they set up to go fishing. Danny commented to his father that there was a hell of a pretty girl headed their way, and immediately, they had something else in mind they'd like to catch that day. As Carrie continued running around the lake, the father and son hid and waited patiently, like they'd done countless times before, hunting for the next meal. When Carrie first spotted the men, she assumed they were hikers or hunters, but as she got closer, she realized there was something off about them. There were rifles propped up against a nearby tree and a pistol on the younger man's hip, his hand resting on the handle. But before Carrie had any time to stop her momentum, she came face to face with the men. It's the kind of terrifying experience countless women joggers fear and hope will never happen to them every time they go out for a run. Because being confronted attacked, harassed, raped, abducted, or murdered by a stranger while out running alone 
is a horrifically very real possibility. It's happened many times before. Most recently to hit the headlines was the disappearance of Eliza Fletcher, a mom and kindergarten teacher out for a morning jog when she was suddenly pushed into a vehicle, only later to be found deceased. Her body dumped behind a vacant duplex in Tennessee. Or there's also the case of Molly Tibbetts, which we covered in episode 107, a university student out for a run along a rural road in Iowa when she was attacked and murdered, later found in a cornfield. It's every woman jogger's worst nightmare, and Carrie found herself smack dab in the middle of an encounter with two men she knew full well had bad intentions just looking at them. Immediately, Carrie turned and tried running in the opposite direction, but Don grabbed her wrist and told her they didn't run into pretty girls up there often and they'd like to talk to her. But by the aggressive way Don had grabbed her, Carrie knew there was no way. All he wanted to do was have a conversation. For a few moments, Carrie desperately tried to talk herself out of the situation, but it was clear these men had no intentions of letting her go. So Carrie changed tactics and started screaming at the top of her lungs. Although they were out in the middle of nowhere, they couldn't risk someone hearing her. So Don struck her in the face, wrestled her to the ground as Danny tied a rope around her wrist, securing the other end to himself. In no uncertain terms, Don made it clear he wouldn't hesitate to use whatever force necessary to keep her from screaming again. From there, the kidnappers led Carrie off the trail, into the woods, and up into the surrounding mountain area. Danny led the way, pulling Carrie along with the nylon leash he'd fastened around her. Don followed behind with his rifle drawn and at the ready. As they made their way up into the hills, Carrie studied the landscape. If by chance, she might break free and could find her way back. Carrie tried her best to leave clues behind so someone would be able to find her, purposely making footprints whenever she spotted soft soil. Dropping her running headband and watch on the ground, Carrie was thinking like a survivor. But with every clue she tried leaving behind, Don noticed. Because if there was one thing Don was good at, it was living in the mountains and knowing how not to be followed. As they headed deeper and deeper into the forested mountains, a million horrific scenarios must have flooded Carrie's thoughts. What exactly was their plan? None of the possible outcomes could have been good. They'd only hiked about a mile into the wilderness before Don and Danny decided to make camp. It was between 5 and 6 o'clock, and they weren't actually too far from where Carrie had been abducted. But Don had carefully erased any traces of where they'd taken her. Eventually, Carrie was filled in on what her captors' twisted intentions were for. They'd abducted her to live in the mountains with them, to become their wife, because apparently they were lonely up there and hoped on increasing their numbers by starting a clan of their own. And to do that, they needed a woman. It had been something Don had been dreaming about for the past five years. He even bought a chain, assuming he would find a woman one day that wouldn't willingly go along with his warped fantasy. Over the years, 
he tried unsuccessfully to convince a number of other women to join him voluntarily, but for some strange reason, none of them ever took him up on his offer. But now that Danny was living in the mountains with him, Don finally decided to put his plans to abduct a woman into motion. It was almost as if Carrie was supposed to be some kind of gift for Danny, like a reward for agreeing to live with him. Wait till you see the neat underground caves we live in, Danny told Carrie. We can live up there forever. It was their hope that whatever woman they captured would eventually decide that living with them wasn't so bad after all and would actually want to stay on their own volition. And maybe one day, that chain wouldn't be necessary. Their plan was to make Carrie Danny's bride, but Don also suggested she might decide for herself one day which one of them she liked best. Don and Danny had promised Carrie that if she didn't like living with them, they'd release her. But after being kidnapped, dragged up a mountainside, and chained to a tree, how could she possibly believe a word that came out of their mouths? The Nicholses intended on spending one night at the camp with Carrie chained to the tree. The next morning, they'd set out early, hiking far back into the wilderness, where it'd be nearly impossible for anyone to find them. Carrie tried warning Don and Danny that people would eventually come looking for her, but they were fairly confident they captured the kind of woman not too many people would be overly concerned about or even notice she'd gone missing. To Don, he thought Carrie looked like a weekend warrior or perhaps a hippie-like seasonal worker without strong ties to the local community, the kind of woman Don would later describe as mixed up, the kind of woman who went out for runs alone wearing sporty running clothes on the outskirts of a tourist town. But when it came to Carrie, that stereotype couldn't have been more wrong. Far from being a lonesome, soul-searching traveler, or in any way mixed up, Carrie Swinson was a world-class athlete who competed internationally for the U.S. women's biathlon team, a unique sport combining cross-country skiing and rifle marksmanship. In fact, Don and Danny had actually abducted her during one of her training sessions. Carrie was also a Montana local whose ties to the area ran deep, and it was impossible for her disappearance to go unnoticed. Her father was the chairman of the physics department at Montana State University, her mother a nurse at the university, and a member of the Bozeman Nordic Ski Patrol. But what triggered the alarm was that Carrie was now late for work. At almost the exact time the men were chaining Carrie to a tree, she was supposed to be arriving back to the luxury Lone Mountain Ranch for a shift. The staff who lived and worked with Carrie on the ranch were extremely close, in many ways more like family than co-workers. Carrie tried warning the men again that people would be looking for her, but Don looked Carrie straight in the eye and told her that if anyone came looking for her, he'd shoot them, and he meant it. Before Don had spoken these words, Carrie's only hope had been that someone would come to her rescue now she feared what might happen if they did. In many ways, ranches like the Lone Mountain had symbolized the end of the mountain men era in the West, 
Droves of homesteaders flocked to areas like Montana in the late 1800s, claiming for themselves large tracts of land, which they began to cultivate, turn into ranches, and settling the land. In 1915, the Lone Star Ranch was homesteaded smack dab in the middle of present-day Big Sky. Originally a full-scale working cattle ranch, it began dipping its toes into the burgeoning tourism industry as early as the 1930s during the Great Depression. Even back then, nearly a century ago, visitors wanted to have a taste of the Old West. In the 1970s, the ranch itself became the base operations for investors and developers who go on to build up the town of Big Sky into a popular resort destination. In 1977, the property was purchased by Bob and Vivian Schaap, who transformed Lone Mountain into the luxury lodge and guest ranch that still remains today. On July 15, 1984, Carrie Swinson was supposed to be back at work around 5 o'clock, and at first, nobody raised a fuss when she hadn't arrived exactly on time. But by 6 o'clock, her younger brother Paul, who also worked at the ranch, realized something must be wrong. He knew exactly where Carrie had parked her car earlier that day, at the trailhead before a run, and any number of scenarios ran through his mind about why she hadn't returned. Maybe she'd injured herself, perhaps she was having car trouble, and then even darker thoughts became possibilities. Just a day before, a grizzly bear had been spotted in just about the same location Carrie went running that day. Being kidnapped by bride-seeking mountain vagrants, however, was the last thing on Carrie's brother's mind. Within minutes of Paul raising the alarm, staff from Lone Mountain, including owners Bob and Vivian, sprung into action. After Bob phoned Carrie's parents in Bozeman to brief them on the situation, Carrie's mother immediately jumped in her car to make her way to Big Sky, while Carrie's father called a friend who was a pilot to fly him over the area and search from the air. By 8 p.m., dozens of ranch staff were searching for Carrie, some on horse, others on dirt bikes, but most on foot. Carrie's father buzzed over the treetops in an airplane, peering out the window for any sign of his daughter. But as the sun began to fade behind the mountains, the chances of finding Carrie faded along with it. As darkness settled over Don and Danny's campsite, the distant sound of the search party's voices could be heard coming through the forest. Don and Danny grabbed their rifles and considered they may have been wrong about how much the woman they kidnapped would be missed. When they heard the search plane flying overhead, getting closer and closer, it confirmed just how badly they'd miscalculated. Don told Carrie, you must be a pretty important person if they're already looking for you in a plane. Once again, Don repeated his promise to shoot anyone who tried to rescue her. Although some of the search party feared the worst for Carrie's safety, none of them could have imagined the extent they were placing their own lives in danger. Carrie's family and staff of Lone Mountain Ranch searched until nearly midnight without any signs of her whereabouts. Although they wanted to continue, searching the area at night in the pitch dark was becoming potentially dangerous for the rescuers, and reluctantly, they decided to head back, agreeing to resume the search again in full at four the next morning. 
Back at the campsite, Don and Danny gave Carrie a dirty sleeping bag to keep warm for the night. However, the chain prevented her from being able to fully crawl inside, and she could only manage to wriggle her body in halfway. Between the terrible cold of the night, the ferocious mosquitoes, and the immense fear of what lay in store for her, Carrie found it impossible to sleep. If Don and Danny carried her off to the mountains the next morning, there was every reason to believe she'd never be seen by anyone ever again. 36-year-old Alan Goldstein was one of the ranch staff who woke up early the next morning to join the search for Carrie. Like most of the workers on the ranch, Alan considered Carrie a friend and didn't hesitate to join the effort. The search now included sheriff deputies and nearly 40 volunteers scouring the wilderness in search of the missing woman. The date was July 16th, and it was also Alan's daughter Jamie's 15th birthday. Because she still lived in Columbus, Ohio with her mother, Alan mailed her a birthday card and hoped it would arrive in time for her special day. This was only Alan's second year working at Lone Mountain Ranch, but he'd already proven to be extremely capable and was given the title of ranch foreman. Before moving out to Montana, Alan had been involved with his family's business, a highly successful chain of menswear stores. But he knew his heart was in the mountains, so he sold his shares of the business and headed out west. But far from being a city slicker, Alan was an accomplished outdoorsman. He was fit, savvy, and especially loved working with horses on the ranch. He learned to become a blacksmith and took pride in being able to shoe the horses. He'd even taken over duties driving the ranch's draft horse team, pulling sleighs for guests in the winters. Before leaving his house that morning, Alan packed a 380 semi-automatic pistol in his bag and set off to join the search. Meeting up at the trailhead, the search party was organized to set out in groups of two, with each pair given a set of walkie-talkies and a specific area to search. Alan had teamed up with his friend Jim Schwalbe and was assigned to search an area north of the trail Carrie had been running. As they searched through the dense terrain, Jim and Alan split up to cover more ground and planned to meet back up periodically. But by 6 a.m., the sun had started to rise, making their efforts a little easier, but there was still no sign of Carrie. That was until 7 a.m., during a period where Jim and Alan were separated. Each of them heard a gunshot ring out, and independently, each began heading toward the sound of the shot. What they'd heard, although neither of them knew it at the time, was the sound of Danny Nichols shooting a squirrel to cook for breakfast. After shooting the squirrel, Danny unchained Carrie from the pine tree where she'd spent the night and led her to the breakfast fire pit. He then chained her up again, this time to a fallen tree. Despite their assertions to Carrie that they intended on releasing her in a few days if she didn't enjoy the experience, Carrie couldn't help but notice that Don had already begun referring her to Danny as your woman. Carrie was now convinced that if the man broke camp before the search party arrived, she'd never come out of the mountains alive. One last time, Carrie begged Danny to let her go, and Danny responded by saying, I want to keep you for myself. As Don began cooking up their breakfast, Carrie heard a rustling in the grass near the edge of the camp. 
It was Alan, her friend. He'd come to rescue her, and he'd made it to the Nichols campsite before Jim. Knowing Dawn and Danny planned on shooting anyone that came to look for Carrie, she began screaming, trying to warn Alan. That's when Danny stood up, drew his pistol, and pointed it straight at Alan. At the same time, Don grabbed his rifle and also pointed it at Alan. Carrie continued yelling with all her might that the men were going to shoot. Shut her up, Danny, Don told his son. Walking over to Carrie, Danny drew his 22 caliber pistol and stood over her, looked directly at her, and pulled the trigger, sending a bullet through the right side of her chest, exiting at her back below her shoulder blade. Carrie felt the hot blood soaking into her shirt and suddenly heard an awful sucking sound coming from the wound. The bullet had pierced her right lung, collapsing it. She screamed again, help me, I've been shot. Immediately, Danny seemed to regret shooting Carrie and kept repeating, I can't believe I shot her. Hearing Carrie's screams, Jim was also able to finally find the campsite and as he approached, Danny shouted to him to come help Carrie. Surprisingly, even Don allowed Jim to come to Carrie's aid, although he pointed his rifle at Jim as he came forward. What happened next, Jim would later describe as the most intense 30 seconds of his life. Jim set down his hiking pack next to Carrie and pulled out his first aid kit, but when he went to inspect Carrie's wound, he noticed for the first time she was chained up. What the hell is going on here, he asked incredulously. Alan was still standing out near the edge of the camp as Jim shouted instructions for him to call for help over the radio. At that moment, Don wheeled his rifle back toward Alan. Seeking an opportunity, Jim attempted to jump up and steal the rifle away from Don, but the old man quickly aimed his rifle back at Jim. Alan then crouched behind a tree reached into his bag to pull out his pistol, calling out, you're surrounded by 200 men, give yourselves up. It's unknown in that moment whether or not Don believed Alan was bluffing. If he was, it meant Alan was Don's only threat. If he wasn't, Don had already resigned himself not to be taken alive. In either case, Don's decision would have been exactly the same. Pointing his rifle back at Alan, Don pulled the trigger, striking Alan in the face, causing him to fall backwards into the brush. Jim immediately sprinted towards his friend, but with one look he could see, Alan was dead. After witnessing his friend shot dead in front of him, Jim realized he needed more help and ran into the woods to find it. In the meantime, the father and son were quickly packing up their gear and supplies. They'd shot Carrie and killed the man. They needed to get out of there and abandon their plan. Surprisingly, they unlocked the chain from around Carrie, but had no intention of taking her with them. Instead, they planned on leaving her to die. Before leaving, however, they grabbed the bottom of the dirty sleeping bag she'd been sitting in and ripped it away from her before taking off into the mountains. And there was Carrie, severely wounded, lying on the ground, gasping for air. 
With Don and Danny in full-on escape mode, Carrie went into full-on survival mode. The entire right side of her body had gone numb, and with every movement, a blinding pain shot through her body. Although Jim's rucksack was only a few feet away, she was barely able to reach it. Getting Alan's radio was impossible. Thankfully, inside Jim's pack was a canteen of lemonade, a candy bar, and sleeping bag. With her body going into shock, Carrie was freezing and did her best to painfully wriggle herself inside the sleeping bag. When Carrie tried yelling for help again, the effort resulted in her bullet wound reopening. To control the bleeding, she needed to control her breathing, a technique Carrie used in her biathlon competitions. After fully exerting herself around the cross-country track, Carrie would then have to instantaneously calm herself when she got to the firing range portion of the race, taking deep, careful breaths, deliberately slowing down her heart rate in order to shoot with precision. No one could have ever predicted that Carrie's training would ever be used in any situation other than sport. But there she was, using a breathing exercise that could literally mean the difference between life and death for her. If she panicked, if her heart began racing, she'd most likely bleed out before she was ever found again. After fleeing the campsite, Jim ran as fast as he could and reported the horrifying scene he'd witnessed to the rest of the search team. The sheriff of neighboring Gallatin County ordered all the civilian searchers out of the area, and once official reinforcements arrived, two helicopters were sent off, with Jim aboard one to point out where he'd seen Carrie. But in all the chaos and confusion, Jim found it difficult remembering exactly where he'd spotted her. If they'd been able to go back in on foot, he may have remembered more easily, but everything looked so much different from up in the air. Eventually, they managed to find the camp by spotting the red backpack Jim had left behind. And there was Carrie, still alive, laying on Jim's sleeping bag, concentrating every ounce of her energy on breathing, staying awake, and staying alive for nearly four hours. Immediately, Carrie was airlifted from the mountains and flown to a nearby hospital, where her family were already waiting for her to arrive. At the same time Carrie was being transported, rescuers were turning their attention to the body of Alan Goldstein. The scene was horrible. A 36-year-old man in the prime of his life, gunned down, trying to save his friend. Men like Alan and Jim were the kind of men who embodied the ideals of the West and the spirit of the original mountain men. Running into a camp to save Carrie, despite having guns pointed at them, undeniable acts of pure bravery. As for Don and Danny Nichols, yes, it's true they lived in the mountains, but they'd murdered a good man in cold blood. They'd abducted and shot an innocent woman, leaving her for dead. These weren't mountain men. They were vicious criminals who'd convinced themselves otherwise. The sheriffs of Madison and Gallatin counties were going to do whatever it took to bring the men responsible of Allen's death and Carrie's abduction to justice. Based on descriptions of the men from Carrie and Jim, it didn't take long to piece together who they were looking for. 
Dawn had been on the Forest Service's radar for a long time, and to confirm their suspicions, they also found an inscription carved into a tree not far from where Carrie had been taken. Dawn and Dan Nichols live in these mountains. The carving was dated July 14, 1984, the day before Carrie's kidnapping. For the next five months, father and son were able to successfully hide away in the mountains while authorities did their best to find them, flying helicopters with night vision, riding horses through the ranges, and following up on any reported sightings of the fugitives. Periodically, Don and Danny would resort to stealing supplies from ranger stations and various cow camps located high up in the mountains. But by the time the thefts were reported and authorities arrived to investigate, the Nichols were long gone. Knowing they needed to leave their mountain camps before winter fully set in, Don and Danny decided to secretly leave the mountains and hide out in the low country. On December 12th, they waited until nightfall to make their move, but an early winter blizzard slowed them down, forcing them to make camp a lot sooner than they wanted in a place called Cold Springs Ranch, only about 20 miles away from where they'd abducted Carrie Swinson. It also just so happened to be the exact ranch Madison County Sheriff Johnny France had grown up and knew every inch of the land like the back of his hands. Don and Danny had no idea that they just made their final camp on the sheriff's home turf. Late the next morning on December 13th, Ronald Moore, the rancher who currently ran the property, was out riding his horse when he spotted a faint tuft of smoke about 500 yards away from where he was riding. A rare mistake for Don and Danny while making breakfast. When Ronald pulled out a pair of binoculars to take a closer look, he spotted Don and Danny looking right back at him. Because the story of the manhunt had become national news, Ronald had a pretty good idea who he was looking at. Both Gallatin and Madison County Sheriffs had been preparing for this moment for months now with an attack plan they named Operation Barnstorm. The idea was to surround the Nicholses with deputies and use a helicopter to apprehend them, hoping Don and Danny would surrender when they realized there was no way out. After Ronald Moore called to alert the sheriff about what he'd spotted, Operation Barnstorm went into action. By the time Sheriff Johnny France and the rest of the deputies had assembled at the ranch, it was about four o'clock, but the helicopter's takeoff had been delayed, which wasn't good, because at that time of the year, there was less than an hour of daylight left. If they didn't catch Don and Danny before sunset, it was possible they could lose them forever. So without waiting for the helicopter to arrive, Sheriff France decided to act. He commandeered a forest ranger snowmobile and set out after Don and Danny, alone. Finding their footprints in the fresh snow, Sheriff France followed the pair for a few miles before leaving the snow machine and continuing on foot. Eventually, he located their camp and was able to sneak up behind them with his rifle at the ready. After a brief and utterly tense standoff, Sheriff France had successfully apprehended the most wanted men in the West all by himself, and right on cue, the helicopter arrived above them. France then pressed the button on his radio and told the pilot, 
I've got a couple of guys down here that need a ride. Don and Danny were tried in separate trials the following year, with Don attempting to argue self-defense because Alan Goldstein had a gun. Danny's defense was that he was under the influence of his father and therefore wasn't responsible for his actions. Don was found guilty for kidnapping, murder, and given a sentence of 85 years in prison. Danny was found guilty of kidnapping, misdemeanor assault, and only given a 10-year sentence. The verdict was controversial because under Montana's felony murder rule, the jury had been required to find Danny guilty of murder if they'd found him guilty of kidnapping. But the jury had been swayed by the sympathetic betrayal his defense lawyers had curated for him. After only serving six years in prison, Danny was released on parole in 1991. Don was granted parole in 2017 after spending 32 years behind bars. In the months after being shot, Carrie slowly recovered from her physical injuries and sought professional help to overcome the severe psychological trauma she'd experienced. She'd been abducted and threatened with the prospect of essentially becoming a sex slave for two hermits that lived in the mountains. Carrie was also assaulted and shot through one of her lungs. Tragically, she'd also witnessed one of her good friends lay down his own life in an effort to save hers. To this day, Carrie can't fully exert herself without experiencing searing pain from the shrapnel fragments still in her body. But there was nothing that was going to stop Carrie from competing again, and she began training, even while the manhunt for the Nichols was still underway. Less than a month after the capture, Carrie won the gold medal in the 1985 U.S. National Championship. The following season, she went on to win fourth place at the International Games in Norway. Eventually, Carrie quit competitive skiing and began studying to become a veterinarian in 1986, which she still practices in Bozeman, Montana to this day. And if there's one thing Carrie has proven before the day of her abduction and every day since is that she's a fighter, a survivor, and a woman who would not allow the trauma of her experience to ever stop her from enjoying the beautiful landscape of Montana. Alan Goldstein's daughter Jamie learned of her father's death on the day of her 15th birthday. Two days later, the birthday card he'd sent her arrived in the mail. In 2019, ESPN interviewed Jamie for their 30 for 30 podcast, Out of the Woods, that told Carrie Swenson's story. Speaking about her father, Jamie said that Alan was a good man and had a daughter who loved him and had a wife who loved him. She called Alan a hero, saying, he would stand up and do pretty much anything for anyone. He did the best thing and the right thing. He just didn't come out on the winning side of it. But I'm glad Carrie did. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. 
If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.